Well, good morning, and welcome to those of you who are just joining us online. I'm so glad that you could be with us today, and to those of you who have walked in since the start of the service, I'm so glad you could be here today. Hope you didn't melt on the way here today. I am uh, preaching without a jacket because it's hot, and uh, I'm not dealing with that today. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel. I'm so glad you could be here. We've been in a series where we've been looking at the great I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. He makes seven of them. Today is, what's today, part four, part five? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? We're on part, part five, according to my notes. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus' statement, I am the good shepherd. But before we get into that, let's start with a word of prayer, get our hearts ready. Lord, thank you for this time of worship that we've spent before your throne. God, you're everything. We need you. Thank you for being with us, Lord. Thank you for your word and how it goes into our hearts. We pray that we would be ready, that we would receive, that you would speak to us today. Speak to each one of us in the way that we need to hear through your Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for it. In your name, amen. So last week, we talked about Jesus' statement, I am the gate, or I am the door, I am the gate of the sheepfold. And that came from John chapter 10. And this week, we are still in that same chapter. And I don't want to retread all of the work that we did last week, laying the foundation for this chapter. You're welcome to watch it on YouTube or download our podcast if you need a refresher or if you missed last week. But I'll do a quick recap because I don't want us to go in totally unprepared. The context for John chapter 10 starts in John chapter 7. And Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Tabernacles, which lasts about a week. And he's still there in chapter 10. He's been there this whole time engaging with the Pharisees. In fact, he's been having sharp, nasty engagements with the religious leaders. Uh, he's, been, he's been beefing, Anna told me is the right word. They've been having beef. And uh, they've been having yo daddy throwdowns, which are a lot like yo mama throwdowns, except that it's about your father. And uh, Jesus told them some, it's good, it's fun, it's fun to read. Uh, but John 10 is the continuation of a conversation that started in John chapter 9. It's the same place. It's the same people standing there. In John chapter 9, Jesus is speaking with uh, a man who he healed, who was thrown out of the, out of the synagogue. Um, so Jesus is there. His followers are there. At least a few of the Pharisees are there. Uh, the blind man, or the formerly blind man, is there. So let's reread the start of Jesus' statement in John 10, because John 10 is a whole lot of Jesus talking. So let's start at the beginning of John 10, where we focused last week, and then we'll continue to the end of this section, which will end at verse 21. Starting John 10, verse 1. Very truly, I tell you Pharisees, Jesus speaking, just in case we weren't clear. Very truly, I tell you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. 
All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So that's where we left off last week. So I want you to realize that this week is the next breath, right? We're not, we're not changing scenes if this was a movie. This is like the next camera angle. This is the same thing. So let's keep going. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay, my life, lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's the end of our reading for today. So last week, we talked about Jesus' statement, I am the gate. We talked about how Jesus saves us. He provides salvation and security, how he gives us access to God, and how big of a deal that is. But this week, we're focusing on Jesus' statement from verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Before we get into that, though, let's look at a couple of interesting things from the text. Did you see all the great gospel messages in there? Jesus talks about laying his life down for the sheep. He actually says this, four times in this passage. Do you think he's trying to tell us something? Remember, the disciples and really all of Israel weren't expecting Jesus to die. They were expecting a conquering Messiah who would save them from Rome. They expected him to raise an army to drive out the occupation and to establish a new kingdom, a united kingdom as there was under David and Solomon, greater in splendor even than David and Solomon that all the nations would bow before him. And Jesus is trying to get through to the disciples that he had to die, that he was there to deal with sin, not with Rome. And this is a recurring event in the four Gospels. And it remains important for us today to remember just how purposeful Jesus was about his time on earth. That this wasn't a mistake or a coincidence, and that his message wasn't only about love for one another, as some would like to believe. Which brings us to the next interesting bit. Jesus' claim to have authority over his own life. Not only the authority to lay it down, but the authority to pick it back up. The first part is less shocking to us. We live in a world with medical assistance in dying. We live in a world where bands sing songs how, It's my life! All right, that was a little too much, sorry. 
But we, we have political slogans that say things like, my body, my choice, right? We have this world where we say that it's very much my life. But in the ancient world, especially in first century Israel, this alone would be a shocking statement. Your life isn't yours. You didn't come from nowhere. Think about the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, in the ancient world, they understood that you had a responsibility back to that community that raised you. If nothing else, you had a responsibility to your parents for raising you. You had family, you had a spouse, maybe children, all sorts of people who depended on you. Your life wasn't yours. It belonged to all of these people. And you couldn't just make that decision. Maybe our world today could learn a thing or two from the ancients. But more than just that communal aspect to ownership of your life, the ancient Israelites understood that first and foremost, your life belonged to God. You don't decide when you die. You don't decide whether you get sick. You don't decide if your hair goes gray or just falls out. Which isn't to say that they didn't do anything to mitigate some of, the, mitigate some of those possibilities just as we do today, right? Like, we don't decide when we get sick, but we wash our hands, right? It doesn't mean that they didn't do stuff like that. But there was this understanding that your life belonged to God and that he would do with it as he pleased, This is why murder is punished so harshly in the Old Testament. Fundamentally, you had taken something that was not yours to take, and the person that you had primarily sinned against in taking that life was God. So for Jesus to say that his life was his own to lay down was a shocking statement. At the very least, he is stating that he is not under God's dominion, which is an absurd thing to say. But for us, at least, it's clear that Jesus wasn't claiming to be apart from God. Rather, he was claiming to himself, be God. That his life was his own, and he could lay it down if he so chose. But the second part of Jesus' statement is shocking even to us today. Authority to pick your life back up after laying it down? That's explicitly a reference to resurrection. Remember, John puts the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2, right at the beginning, where the people demand a sign from Jesus, and his response is, destroy this temple, by which he meant his body, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is making a statement, and not for the first time in the Gospel of John, about death's inability to hold him. How can this be anything but a claim to deity? Well, the people there weren't sure. Remember, Jesus and the religious leaders have been clashing for three chapters now, and the people have been caught in the middle. Some have believed Jesus, some have believed the Pharisees, and others don't know what to make of it at all. This happens again at the end of this chapter. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a demon, of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And this is always a sobering reminder to me that if I lived in Jesus' day, I'm not super confident that I would have followed him. I certainly hope so. I'd like to believe so. But you see, we read these words with the benefit of hindsight. Jesus has already died and risen, and not only that, his church has marched triumphantly across the globe. 
Today, approximately one-third of the global population proclaims Christ as Savior and Lord. But if I'd been standing there in this crowd and heard a man who looked like any other man making statements like this, that his life is his own to lay down and his own to pick back up, to claim to be God in the flesh, would I have believed him? It's a sobering thought. And it makes me more sympathetic to the religious leaders and to those who found Jesus too difficult to follow. But mostly it makes me read the Bible with different eyes. And that's always good. Jesus drops one other line here that has been misunderstood by many, but is such great news. In verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now, in this passage, Jesus is 100% talking to ethnic Jews. All of the religious leaders, all of the crowd, all of the disciples, they were all part of the Jewish nation. And their understanding of salvation was pretty Israel-centric. If someone wanted to be saved, they needed to come through Israel. Remember how we talked about Jesus being the true vine? And the imagery of Israel in Scripture as a vine, right? How Jesus is saying that he's that true way. But Jesus here is making a statement about the Gentiles, the nations of the world, that he has come to seek and to save just as much as he came for the people of Israel. Jesus isn't only here to shepherd the lost sheep of Israel. He is the good shepherd, come for all who would call upon his name. So let's talk about the use of that imagery of the shepherd. To say that the Bible is full of shepherding imagery might just be an understatement. I'd be willing to suggest that it is the most common metaphor used in the Bible. I didn't check that. I didn't fact check it. You can check me if you want. But I'd be willing to suggest it. And there's a good reason for that. Israel was a nation of shepherds. Now, of course, that's not an absolute statement. It's not that Israel had no carpenters or accountants or priests. Of course they did. But in terms of national identity, shepherding was extremely close to their hearts. Abraham was a shepherd. Genesis contains many references to Abraham's wealth being in livestock. When Abraham and Lot have to separate and go their separate ways, it's because their flocks and herds are so numerous that they're getting in each other's way. Isaac also was a shepherd, and Jacob maintains the family tradition. But not only that, some of the great stories about God's provision for Jacob while he's with his uncle Laban are about the increase of his flocks. Think about the story where Jacob puts the reeds in front of the water while the animals breed. You can read about that in Genesis 30. When Joseph brings the family to Egypt, they're identified and self-identify as shepherds. And in fact, this is why they are given their own bit of land in Goshen, because the Egyptians don't like shepherds. So to say that shepherding is deeply in the ancestral communal consciousness of Israel is like, that's an understatement. And of course, David, who is the greatest king of Israel, was a shepherd. And the whole land of Israel itself is just highly conducive to shepherding. The shepherds were just everywhere. Even Luke 2, in the announcement of the birth of Jesus, talks about how there were shepherds in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. 
So shepherding as a metaphor, this was something that the people just got instinctively. It was in their blood. It was in their bones. But not only did they see themselves as shepherds, they also saw God as a shepherd. That's a new one. Uh, Probably the most famous example, Psalm 23 begins, The Lord is my shepherd. In Isaiah 40, verse 11, God's promise of comfort to Israel and images of his care takes on this aspect as well. He says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Isaiah picks up this metaphor again in those beloved verses of Isaiah 53, which is a stunning prophecy of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he refers to the people of God in this way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Ezekiel chapter 34 is 30 verses of extended metaphor of God as the shepherd of his people. In this case, Israel as the sheep. In fact, there's so much Jesus reference in this passage, I feel like I could preach a whole sermon on it. In Ezekiel, God is highly critical of the shepherds of Israel, the religious and political leaders. Well, that sounds like Jesus. He's critical of how they've failed in their duty to lead and protect the people. In Ezekiel 34, God promises to judge between the sheep, to separate the sheep from the goats. I don't know if that's ringing any bells, but that is exactly the language that Jesus uses in Matthew 25 when he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. God also promises in Ezekiel 34:23 to place over Israel one shepherd, a descendant of David. Let's read a small portion from Ezekiel 34 just to get an idea here, just like five, six verses. Starting in verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in good pasture. And the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. So think about how much imagery there is. We have all of this imagery, all the weight of these references from scriptures, and we have all of that in mind, and we hear the words of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. Do you hear it? Jesus is claiming to be God. He may never say those words, but that is quite for sure what's going on here. Jesus is calling for our loyalty. 
Jesus is offering the protection and the provision of the shepherd who watches over us as if we were sheep, ensuring that we have what we need and caring for us in our distress. So what's our response? Jesus is the shepherd. Will we be his sheep? Jesus tells a story in Matthew 15 of a shepherd with a hundred sheep and one wanders away and becomes lost. The shepherd seeks out and searches for that sheep until he finds it. And when he brings it home, he celebrates with all his friends and neighbors. Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. In the words of Isaiah, or in the words of the book of Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus is not like the hired hand who sees us in distress and thinks only of saving his own skin. Jesus came after us. Jesus became a human and lived among us so that we could know the depth of God's love for us and so that we could see what life could be like if only we would live his way. And then he died a sinner's death on a cross so that our sin could be paid for and we could be with him. When one person turns from their sin and says to God, I need you. I can't do this, God. I need you. Save me. That's all it takes. It's just a simple prayer of faith and turning to him. When a person does that, all of heaven celebrates as a new life begins. Jesus, the good shepherd, calls to us today. To end, I'd like to read those beloved words from Psalm 23 that remind us of the shepherd's care of God's love and provision for us and of our security in him. In fact, could we stand and read this together? And then we'll, we'll close with a song, but let's, let's stand and we'll, we'll read these words together as our declaration of loyalty and faith and our belief in a God who loves us. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for, before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you that we can be your sheep. Thank you that you have made a way for us to come back. Though our sin is like scarlet, they could be washed white as snow, God. Lord, we love you. We need you. Be with us this week, Lord. Watch over us, care for us, guide our paths, because we, all we like sheep have gone astray, Lord. Be Lord over us today. In your name we pray. Amen.